This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I am here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us once again, our colleague, Chris Murphy. Hi, happy to be back. Uh, David and Rebecca are both on well-earned post-Oscar vacation. So, Chris, you're you're replacing two whole people. Um, that's how highly we think of you, is that um, you can fill it in for both. <laughs> Catch you a girl who can do both. You know what? That's what I always say. <laughs> um, so this week, we get to talk about some new releases, which we haven't gotten to do in a while, because uh, the post-Oscar period or the mid-Oscar period tends to be so tied up in those movies. So we'll talk a little bit about Ambulance and Everything Everywhere All at Once. We'll talk about some future movies as the Cannes lineup speculation begins. And then we are going to revisit this year's Oscars one last time since we haven't really done it in full on this show. Look back a little bit on what went wrong this year and what maybe can go better. And then I'll have a conversation with Matt Bellany of Puck News and a really indispensable newsletter who has his own thoughts about uh, how they can move on from this uh, semi-disastrous year. But let's start by talking about something that I don't think has anything to do with Oscars. But Richard, I want to hear you talk about Ambulance anyway. This is the Michael Bay movie that I believe takes place in an ambulance. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And it didn't really make any money over the weekend, which was kind of a bummer um, for people who I think like original action movies. Um, what do you think happened there, Richard? I think what happened there, or my fear anyway, is that it, it's not IP. You know, mm -hmm. it's just mm. a standalone thing. I mean, it is based on something, but it's just based on a 76-minute Danish action film or Dutch, I forget which one. <laughs> so it's not wholly original, but for our purposes of American Hollywood output, it is. And so you have Sonic the Hedgehog 2 doing really well and then Ambulance failing, which is a shame because I, I, I totally understand that people are not into the quote, bayhem of it all. Mm -hmm. um, I don't always love Michael Bay's work. I think a lot of it is, in addition to being sort of visually over adorned and a lot of it is really crass and gross and sexist and vaguely racist. And, you know, are you saying that's not in style anymore? That what might work for Michael Bay in the mid 90s doesn't work anymore? It's Isn't crazy. That that's wild. Yeah. <laughs> 
but this is, you know, an older, somewhat more considered Michael Bay. Um, a lot of those impulses are not totally gone, but are at least dulled. There are very few, if any, in my memory, leering shots of the backsides of women. Um, mm. The film's politics are a little bit more interesting in terms of cops versus civilians. But, you know, it still has all the frenetic camera work and music. And it, it's it's a fun ride. Uh, it's long. It's probably too long. But it's good. And I think it's really at the center are committed performances from, you know, Yaya Abdul-Mateen and Jake Gyllenhaal and Asa Gonzalez and Garrett Dillahunt. And they're all really good and they elevate the material. And yeah, it's a shame that it didn't connect. But I have a feeling that that will be big on streaming uh, Mm. whenever it's on streaming. Mm. And it will definitely be big on airplanes because it's, you know, a two hour, 20 minute movie. That's half a trip, a third of a trip, depending on where you're going. Um, So it'll have a life. It definitely will. But I think people were not willing to sort of venture to the theaters to see something untested, which is not a great sign of, of, uh, we've had a lot of other good indicators for box office health, but uh, time and time again, in recent months, it's been only for stuff that is coming from very trusted intellectual property. So you're saying Sonic the Hedgehog 2 wasn't the artistic achievement of Ambulance that we should be looking toward? Well, I, I mean, Sonic it. 2 Sonic 2 is interesting because people are really, you know, oh, David Lynch has a secret movie at Cannes, but he also has this. So it would be a huge year for David Lynch to have both Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> um, I'm surprised they didn't save Sonic for Cannes, honestly. That would have been a great yeah. opener. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, like they, <laughs> exactly. They get him to like roll up like Sonic does up the red carpet. No, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't seen Sonic, so I can't comment on it, but. I will say, at least for Ambulance, and maybe this is just me, but I feel like I consume a lot of media and I don't pretend to be like a marketing genius, but the movie sort of came out of nowhere. I don't, I didn't really see much of a lead up. It was basically like Jake Gyllenhaal just in one weekend, he was hosting SNL and he was doing our Vanity Fair career timeline. And I heard about the movie in like in one second. So I don't know what that's about or if that had something to do with it. And maybe it's because I was actually seeing commercials for it, but there was no familiar IP. So I thought it was just, you know, a commercial for an ambulance. I don't know. But <laughs> I I definitely, it definitely came out of nowhere because I, you know, I would love to see a movie with Jake and Yaya. I think, you know, I think that sounds like an interesting pairing and an older, more considered Michael Bay also sounds like something I would want to touch down on, but it just didn't, I don't know if it transcended into my orbit, so to speak. Yeah, that's fair. I think that marketing is a huge consideration here. I think we talked about that with West Side Story, where people assumed that everyone had familiarity with this decades-old property, but maybe that wasn't the case, actually. And then it took streaming for them to kind of be like, oh, I'll give that a chance. So maybe there was just a sort of everyone thought, Michael Bay, Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah, yeah, that'll be enough. And it clearly wasn't. You know, because you also do have an original thing in everything, everywhere, all at once that is playing, you know, in quote unquote specialty box office like really well. It's now, I think, in like 1200 theaters. So that is an original thing that is doing well. So maybe my whole analysis of Ambulance's failure is wrong. And it's what you're saying, Chris. It's that people just weren't really aware of it. Well, I bet it. I mean, it's probably right in the middle. And like, that's so funny that you mentioned that because everywhere, every, sorry, everything, everywhere, all at once. All weekend, I was seeing it everywhere on my timeline. Every single person that I, you know, respect online was like, you have to see this movie, you have to see this movie, you have to see this movie. And guess what? I saw the movie last night, and you have to see the movie. (laughs) I thought it was so phenomenal. So I think that's a really, that's a great point that sometimes it's not just actual marketing material, but just word of mouth, you know, that viral marketing and that sort of, you know, if it's out there and people are talking about it, people might go see it. Yeah. 
Well, because Ambulance had critical acclaim on some level. You know, I think there's been a lot of critics who have, you know, looked at Michael Bay's work seriously as, you know, he is an auteur of his movies. Um, But Everything Everywhere All at Once kind of had this whole extra level of it. And it felt so original that it was so removed from the concept of IP at all, which I think was a big selling point of it. I mean, not every movie can be inventive in the way that this movie is because it's really, really out there. But I think it has kind of a must-see factor. I mean, Chris, you saw it on, on like, Monday night, which is usually a quiet night for movie going. Was it a crowded theater? I will say it was, I went to Cobble Hill Cinemas, and it was about, I would give it a, a solid 40% full, okay. which I think is pretty good for a Monday night. Yeah. Um, At that little ev- theater especially, yeah. Yeah. And people were really I, like blown away. Multiple applause breaks and even applause <laughs> at the so end. Great. Yes. <laughs> Rakakuni did get an applause break <laughs> um, as he deserves. Um, but yeah, I I just thought it was particularly astounding. It's especially because I'm not a big I'm not a big Michael Bayhead and I'm definitely not a big sort of kung fu multiverse person. I think the only multiverse I've ever gone to is Spider-Man into the multiverse. Like it's well, not that ref- kind of really I think that trained us all. Like that movie was seen by enough people who were like, okay, I get the concept of a multiverse. And we had to like start there so we could understand everything everywhere all at once. Exactly. <laughs> had I not seen that, and I guess like maybe Looper and like Fight Club even, like I don't know if I would have <laughs> been able to like really, you know, follow what was going on. But it was it was just so specific and I, I it, it was such a specific, beautiful story about this Chinese family who owns a laundromat that then just goes literally everywhere all at once um, and splinters into all these amazing, incredible directions and such a feat of directing too. I got to say the Daniels, I have no idea how they pulled that, how they did that. I have no, no, I have absolutely no concept. The amount of costume changes and scenic changes and all of the elements were so across the board. Fantastic. And what I come to the movies for amazing female performances, Michelle Yeoh was breathtaking. I thought she was so Mm -hmm. wonderful. And, and her skill set so perfectly suited for that role. The only person I can imagine pulling that off. Um, and I really, 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 really hope it translates into legitimate, deserved award buzz that like lasts into the fall, into uh, next Oscar season. Yeah. I, I thought it was a, a feat. I thought it was an absolute triumph of filmmaking. And I called my mom the second it was over. <laughs> I've I've seen multiple people say that like it makes you want to call your mom at the end of it, and it, it yeah. made me want to go home and hang out with my children. Who uh, you know, my relationship with them is not quite what you see in this movie, but give us time. Um, and I had just I saw um, Shang Chi for the first time finally um, on the plane out to LA for the Oscars, and um, you know Michelle Yeoh shows up near the end, kind of when the movie gets more boring, and you're like, oh god, I love her. Like I wish that she wasn't showing up in the part. I don't really want to watch. Um, and then everything everywhere really makes up for it because she is just so central to that movie. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, this, it's doing well. It's almost made more money than Ambulance at this point, looking at Box Office Mojo, um, which is really something. It's it's doing quite well. And you can just – I feel like A24 knows that they've got something good here. Like, I got invited to a special screening of it happening in L.A. this week. Like, I think they know that they've got – Michelle Yeoh has a strong narrative. She's been famous what seems like forever. She's been in really wonderful movies. Since Crazy mm-hmm. Rich Asians, it feels like she's been even more visible uh, than she's been anywhere else. Like, I have friends who love her on Star Trek discovery which i forgot she was on uh because i don't watch it (laughs) um but if you want to you know celebrate someone who has had a huge career you know this movie i think is i can imagine it being a tough sell for a lot of people you know it looks very big and crazy and genre but i think once you see it it's it's pretty accessible does that is that crazy to say that like once you're in this movie it's not hard to follow and it's got a strong emotional pull to it that i think anyone can get even if the multiverse stuff is over their head yeah and i think that's what makes it 
that's what I loved about it. And I, I do think something about movies and great art is that it's so specific and it's such a specific story about this one family's dynamics that it becomes completely universal. And it and the Daniels take that and really make it universal in such a crazy literal way by having all of these different multiverses and all these different versions of uh, Michelle Yeoh's character. And it's really just a story about, a you know, a woman who is struggling in her life and, and wishes she had made different choices. That's basically what it's about. And mm-hmm. then there's so much more packed on to it that I think if you get butts and seats, which luckily is happening, I think it's hard to imagine someone not being able to connect with like the central idea, at least Michelle Yeoh's arc among, yeah. in the film. I think that's like the clearest, the easiest sell. I think Stephanie Sue, she does a, a lovely job. She's a musical theater actress, Broadway actress. Gotta shout that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'd love to see a, a transition from stage to screen. I think she does wonderful work. I think Kehi Kwan as the husband, Wayman, he's fantastic. And he honestly has maybe the toughest sell in terms of the the range of, <laughs> yeah. of um, characters that he has to play. Badass James Bond kung fu, you know, martial arts guy. And then like a hapless, sweet, nerdy husband. It's really... And, then, and don't forget like smoldering like Wong Kar Wai star in the scenes uh, that, you know, basically take place on like on the streets after a movie premiere where he's got those great glasses and that suit. Like he he oh, has so the race. He's he so hot. It. I mean, they both he's look so incredible hot. in that scene. Oh, absolutely. It's so hot. Well, his story is because like I was I really didn't know much about the movie. I kind of managed to avoid the trailers. I'm watching it being like, he just reminds me of like data from the Goonies. But like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I think that's him? And it's him. And he had this (laughs) child actor career in these roles that like, you know, I think really he he was important Asian representation, I think, for a lot of people. But I think you can really debate how uh, high quality those roles were. He was in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom as well. And then kind of left acting behind, I think, a lot because the roles for an Asian actor at that point were really limited. And this comeback mm-hmm. he's got now being in this movie, he's so great in it. You want to just leave for bigger things. You know, Michelle Yeoh has this narrative as this major movie star for so long, but his comeback story is really incredible, too. Well, oh, I did not know that. And that's that's fantastic. I, uh, I've got to say, this was one of those rare occasions where the hype that I was seeing online actually didn't exceed my experience of seeing Yeah, and I think there's, I think the, some of the hype is getting to the point where people are like, okay, I get it. And Richard, you haven't seen it yet, and I wonder if you're you're watching the hype and being, like, wondering if it can possibly live up to it, because that certainly is something film Twitter has been known to do. Yeah, I was supposed to go see it, and then things conspired, and, and also I <clears throat> so loathed Swiss Army Man that I was like, ugh. But, um, <laughs> but everything about this sounds like it's a different kind of thing, and Helping Yo's case, at least in terms of awards, is the way that she's talked about the role and talked about the film. I mean, there was a viral clip last week where she was talking about her career in general, but she, you know, got to everything everywhere all at once specifically and and got teary and said, I read this script and I wanted to kind of suss out the directors because to me, this is the thing I'd been waiting for my whole career. Like Mm. I got I get Mm -hmm. to show my range dramatically, comedically, all this stuff. And that is a huge conversation about like Michelle Yeoh has had a really formidable career internationally, in America, everywhere, largely in martial arts films and period films. But like someone of as high, you know, international stature as Michelle Yeoh can still feel like she's not getting roles commensurate with her talent that white actresses are getting. And I think that narrative, which is very true and spoken very, you know, beautifully and, and, and earnestly by her, 
that makes a really strong case for recognizing oddball genre work because it means a lot to the people who are engaging with the film and to the people who made it. And that's the kind of narrative that I think an ailing Academy certainly could benefit from. My one question, though, in terms of the movie's Oscar chances is, you know, with all of its hot dog fingers and magic butt plugs, <laughs> hasn't the Academy had enough of that after Belfast? You know? I can't believe you got spoiled on the magic butt plugs because that was a reveal for me watching the movie and it was uh, a delight. <laughs> That was an applause break in the theater. And I, th <laughs> I think I led that applause break, if I'm being totally honest. Yeah, I mean, it is a tough sell for the Academy. I think we all know that. But I think A24, you know, their their Oscar track record is interesting because obviously Moonlight was this huge success. And then Zola last year, I think a lot of us were really big fans of that. And Coleman Domingo, and it couldn't really go the distance. So I think it can... You know, they can sell things so far to a really engaged film audience. But in terms of Oscar votes, it can be a different thing. But... Again, like, I think if you're not going to root for Michelle Yeoh in this, like, who are you rooting for in an Oscar race? Yeah. And the film, I mean, it really, it doesn't work without her performance. It's no. just, there's no, there's just no way it makes any sense. It, 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 it sings in any way without her performance. And it really does. So I, you know. I'll put my flag on the Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and look, the, the, the Michelle Yeoh fandom has been vocal for a long time. We've we've been aware of it for a long time. You know, when Crazy Rich Asians came out, they were out in full force. You know, supporting actress push, and, mm -hmm, and she mm -hmm. didn't get it, but she came close, I think. And so far for this movie, like it is a real object of passion for people, and for good reason, it seems. And I, I think if we want to talk cynically, like that is the kind of thing that people would actually tune into next year to mm. see if she wins. Oh, mm -hmm. You know, this is the kind of thing where like, oh, well, should we give Spider-Man an honorary Oscar because it's Spider-Man? Okay, <laughs> that feels a little bit more shoehorned in than would. Let's look a little further afield than the fall prestige movies, which are still, yeah. you know, largely pretty white, pretty mm -hmm. staid. And, and and actually take some, you know, it would have been maybe Nicolas Cage for Pig or something this year. Um, and I think that kind of thing where you're taking film fans who are sort of think the Oscars are passe or whatever and saying, no, 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 we, we see your films and, and those performances and we're going to bring them into the mix. I think that could be a more organic way to broaden the viewership of the ceremony. Yeah. I'm going to say one more thing in favor of the Michelle Yeoh Oscar buzz. Uh, she's in a little movie coming out later this year called Avatar 2. Oh. Which I did not know until I was looking at her IMDb just now. Um, Wait, that's actually coming out? We, we that's, reached what the, that's what they say, right. <laughs> until proven otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I'll believe um, it when I see it. She's <laughs> playing Dr. Karina Moog. Uh, I don't know if she goes underwater with Kate Winslet, but I'm eager to find out. So, you know, that can't hurt in terms of keeping her in the public eye, right? Oh, Karina Moog finished her PhD? I didn't know. That's good. That's <laughs> you know, good I'm, really, I'm really I proud of her. I knew she was really, she'd been kind of in school for 10 years. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card. 
or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So as you're listening to this, uh, probably the CAN lineup, or at least the initial CAN lineup, is out. They say it's coming out on Thursday. We're recording this a little bit early. Um, but there's been some really uh, fevered speculation about it. Having never been to CAN, I tend to not get excited because I'm going to see all those movies later. But Richard, you're our, our man on the crosset. And you will be again this year, which is really exciting. And um, there's some really interesting stuff that people are speculating might be on that lineup. What's got you excited? Yeah, I'll be there with Rebecca Ford, which is exciting. Um, she has already accepted an RSVP to a fancy dinner that normally I would have gone to. But now we actually have someone who's going to be covering that stuff. So She's I'm, not going to just I'm... sneak you in as her plus one? You guys <laughs> no, get to no. dress up? <laughs> I don't think we get plus ones at Cannes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it it that that all it's fun to hear that there are parties and dinners happening uh, as planned. But also the movies are shaping up. We don't know the th- announcements Thursday, but we do know some things that are for sure going to be there, which would be Top Gun and Elvis, mm-hmm. and I believe the George Miller Three Thousand Years of Longing has been confirmed with Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba, which is uh, really exciting because we know like nothing about that one. Mm, yeah, it's a romance involving I believe a genie. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. the. I mean, I guess the Aladdin live action remake was the last <laughs> genie movie we had, but we don't have many genie movies. No. And so that'll be interesting. Also, Lightyear. What if there was a Lightyear, you know, prequel? Or I don't know. What, what is it? Origin story for Buzz Lightyear? <laughs> uh, no, it's the story of the real person that Buzz Lightyear the toy was based on. We all know this. Naturally. Uh, very of course. Clear. Of course, Richard. We're always talking about this. <laughs> Famously. I can't believe you forgot that. <laughs> and you have Tom Cruise, who I'm imagining will literally fly a fighter jet into the palais. Yeah, like, I, you yeah. know, do some kind of crazy stunt um, like the year that... One of the Expendables movies was there, and Stallone and all the others rolled a t- a f- an actual tank down the Quasette wow. to promote that movie. Um, you know, and Hunger Games was throwing parties where they were flying people there in helicopters. I mean, that, that that's some can largesse of old that maybe uh, maybe we could see a little of this year. So we cannot end this episode with a, you know, doing a proper conversation about this year's Oscars, which now feel like many years ago. And I think most of us are pretty eager to move on, as evidenced by last week's episode talking about uh, this coming year of Oscar contenders. Um, But as I said, I'll share the interview I had, the conversation I had with Matt Bellany of Puck News, who had some thoughts about, you know, what to learn from this year um, and what to maybe keep. He was more of a fan of some of the elements of the ceremony changes than some of us were. But Chris, we, you know, you haven't been on since this year's Oscars in general. Um, And we don't need to go into too much detail about the slap, which has been (laughs) discussed uh, endlessly at this point. Um, But as an Oscar fan and kind of like a nerd for this kind of stuff, does this year's Oscars just leave an overall bad taste in your mouth? Do you feel like we kind of need to to burn all of this down and start over again? Yeah, I think you you took the words out of my mouth. It's gotta, we gotta we gotta act, raise it. We gotta burn it down, and we need to arise like a, a phoenix out of the ash with something yes. completely brand new. And I gotta say, like, not no shade to Will Packer because I do think some of the things that he did were interesting. I, for one, liked the three hosts model. I think that was interesting. I liked having a little variety there. I thought they all did a pretty wonderful job between Regina, Amy, and Wanda. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's fine to take risks, but if we get too far away from what the Oscars are about, which are 
say it with me, the Oscars, then what are we <laughs> then what are we doing here? Right? I think we need to go more inside baseball, not to sort of parrot what I said about everything everywhere all at once earlier, um, in terms of getting really specific to make it more universal. The people who watch the Oscars actually want to know love the Oscars and want to look backwards to also look forwards. I would like if there were like a segment about, you know, I know that we understand how the Oscar voting works because we it's our job to do that. But I feel like that would be like there could be a fun way to sort of explain the you know the preferential ballot system in like I'm saying it out loud and it sounds really boring, but I swear <laughs> to God, I swear to God, there's a fun way to do this. I think I just think this idea that we have to sort of kowtow to the masses of people who never cared and don't care and don't really like movies, but they like, as Richard said, they like IP and they like things that are familiar. I don't see the value in that. And I think having some fun with it, actually glamming up, having hosts, you know, a performance or two. I don't think we need to hear every single best song performance. I'm sorry. Some of them are flops and I won't name names, but, but some <laughs> well, of them Van are Morrison not that... wasn't invited. We didn't appear this year anyway. So, and thank goodness for that. But I just think, yeah, I think that we have to sort of go internal and look at what the people who actually care about the Oscars care about, which are the Oscars and sort of let that be the baseline rather than reaching out to the masses of people who ultimately don't care. Um, To talk a little bit about the slap for a second, do you think that what the Academy decided with Will Smith to ban him from Oscar events for Academy events for the next 10 years, do you think that will do what I assume was their goal of just closing the door and moving on? Like, is that is that enough to move past this for now, at least? (laughs) I mean, for now, but the the Pandora's box is just going to open in 10 years. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I'm going to be 38 and we're going to have to re-litigate the slap discourse. I mean, oh I, I've talked. You're going to be Imagine being howled. 38. <laughs> I got to go. Practically dead in the ground. <laughs> no, I just, I mean, not to quote my mom, uh, but we're all very disappointed in this, right? It was a very disappointing moment, though it was exciting and the ceremony did need an exciting moment. I sort of wrote about this for VanityFair.com and sort of reveled a few feathers for saying that. Um, And I do think it's time that we have to, we have to put it behind us because we have to move on to something else. But I would be lying if I thought that the punishment was even sort of, not even fit the crime, but it barely has anything to do. I mean, it seems sort of kind of a random sentence to me. In terms of obviously, you know, there should be consequences for actions and you can't go up on stage and hit people ever. I don't think that's a good thing. But to ban to ban him from the ceremony for 10 years for actors of his caliber going to like award shows is sort of their job. So it's sort of like you don't have to do a part of your job for 10 years. So I don't even know. I mean, I think he cares deeply about the Oscars, but I'm, I'm not sure that's as much of a sticking point or as much of a, you know, a condemnation as it might appear to be. And he can and he can't vote for things again. You know, I've heard from many people, people that I know in the Academy that they just sometimes forget to vote because they're just not paying attention. How dare they? I know. I know. It's actually sort of, <laughs> that's sort of crazy. Um, I was like, just give me your ballot. Yeah, I'll do let it. us vote. <laughs> and I think it's more, we'll see what happens with his career, you know, and the projects that he's allowed to make and what he's allowed to do from now. And I think that's going to be really the test of time. But I don't, I, it feels very random and very sort of, again, kowtowing to people who are, you know, the Judd Apatos of the world. He could have mm. killed Chris Rock um, and sort sure. of be like, look, 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 we did something. Like, he's in trouble when it doesn't really, I don't think it matters that much. Yeah, it- it's hard to punish someone who's that powerful, right? And that famous. Like, there's not a lot of consequences that can come to Will Smith unless his movies all start tanking after this, which I think is the open question, right? 
Exactly. And yeah, it's yeah, beyond like Chris Rock, you know, pressing charges, which he didn't do. And, you know, beyond something happening in that realm, this and beyond taking back his Oscar, which I will go on record and say that would be insane and awful. Yeah. And I don't think that is the answer here at all, because I mean, two separate things completely. And we don't even have to get into the sort of, you know, all of the terrible men specifically who have won Oscars and have them on their shelves still. Beyond that, I think they felt pressure to sort of bring down a verdict in some way. And they definitely did that. But yeah. I don't think the verdict is super relevant or it doesn't make me feel like, wow, justice was served. I don't sure. feel that way. I actually did want to quote your mom. And I was telling you this earlier because you wrote the piece uh, for our awards issue about the 20th anniversary of the night that Halle Berry and Denzel Washington both won Oscars and Sidney Poitier won the um, the honorary Oscar. And your mom had a party where she wanted to root for everyone black, which I loved as a theme for any party. Um, and I just you know, was thinking about this being the 20th anniversary of that and Denzel Washington being there. And Sidney Poitier died earlier this year. And, it, you know, with Will Packer producing, there was so much black talent on display. And then this happens between two of the most famous black men in Hollywood. And it just felt like such a bummer. Like, and I think that's what you said your mom was feeling too, just like this deep disappointment, right? Yeah. Oh my God. The, te- the text that I got from my parents <laughs> while I was trying to write for Vanity Fair You're about like, I the didn't incident. do this, mom. I was like, this is not my fault. <laughs> um, but they were, yeah, they were deeply disappointed. And I think it's something actually, I mean, I got into a, a, so many arguments in the week afterwards about the slap and what it meant for the world and whatnot. And I think a, th- a thing that sort of that I had to impress upon a, a lot of my white friends and a lot of white people is that, you know, well, yes, it, you know, this was an isolated incident between two super rich and famous people who are going to be fine and are fine and have always been fine in a way. It also, I mean, Will Smith and Chris Rock are two sort of iconic black men in Hollywood and they're not that, there's not, there's, I had, most of them were in that room, you could argue, that night. Denzel Washington, Samuel Jackson, Will Smith, Chris Rock, that mm-hmm. level and that caliber of fame and notoriety and that importance of being a representative as like a black man in Hollywood, you know, that matters. That sort of, I mean, specifically, you know, I won't speak for all black people, but at least to my family, like those were two important, deeply important figures in my childhood and in my growing up, and mm-hmm. people that I looked out to and for my parents as well, people to be like, hey, these are people, you know, in Hollywood or in the world that, you know, you can and should, if not necessarily emulate, but at least look towards. So I yeah. think that element made it all the more personal and and sad and disappointing for black people and people of color watching this go down. And when people who might not have that same relationship to Will Smith and Chris Rock, like, a you know, Judd Apatow or, a, you know, even Amy Schumer, what she said afterwards, you know, I think that really did upset people because it, it is different. And I don't know, I don't know how else to say it other than mm-hmm. it is sort of, it, it, it hits, it hits different and not to make a slap pun, but. Uh, <laughs> well, that's part of what's um, been so complicated about all this, right? Like what was hard for people to figure out how to react in the moment. And since then, like, I think every possible reaction to this slap and what it has meant has happened from all kinds of different people. And there's no real consensus other than maybe, you know, don't hit someone on a stage. Yeah, that's all we can agree on. <laughs> that's all that we can agree on, and it's all that. I mean, and now that yes, we've we've sort of exhausted all of the. I mean, <laughs> it's almost like everything everywhere at all at once. We've gone through every single multiverse of every single sort of oh, take God. that could possibly be said about this incident. And while I think the show they did, Will Packer did the best he could, and that unfortunate incident, which was deeply unfortunate and and sad, it did 
it, it got eyeballs on the ceremony that we can't deny, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ratings went up. I don't think stunts, I don't think stunt casting and stunt work is the direction that the Oscars, that's not sustainable, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. is what happened. So for next year and for, you know, looking forward, they need to actually go down to the bones of what's broken about the ceremony. And I think what's broken about the ceremony is that that's the most interesting that happened in the last five years, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, we can't rely on a moonlight beating La La Land and Warren Beatty saying the wrong card or, you know, the wickedly talented Adele Dezim to be the thing that gets us to tune in. We need There needs to be more there and we, they have to figure that out. And I think it's about going back to the ceremony itself because some people, some crazy, silly people still care and I am one of them. Don't make them think that bringing John Travolta back is what's going to get people to talk about it again. We don't want to incept that idea. Richard, I have not talked to you about this, but for me in the last two weeks, there's been something kind of nice about having everyone in my life want to talk about the Oscars, because usually that doesn't happen anymore, even though it's been for such a, you know, negative event. Um, Have you had the same experience of, like, actually getting to talk to the Oscars in your real life, despite maybe not wanting to? Yeah, it's that funny thing of, like, why does no one care about what I care about and talk about what I want to talk about? And then it's like, no, you care too much and are talking too much about the thing that I, you know, like it, it's such a fine line because then I, all of a sudden I sort of get on my my defensive crouch and I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about, you know? Like, um, but I think that, I think that what this all really boils down to in terms of like the Oscars future and viewership and all that is that this is a live event. And the reason the slap was so shocking was because it happened on live television. And that so uh, an unplanned moment like that so rarely, rarely, rarely happens in, in a way that we can all see. We can see a grainy TMZ video of Hayden Panettiere getting in some sort of brawl outside of a bar <laughs> in L.A. I remember, remember that. Um, <laughs> you know, or we can see, you know, unexpected things happen in sports. Sure. But like, obviously, we can't plan nor should the Academy hope for more moments like what happened this year. But they can treat it more and more like more of a live event. And what I mean is like, get people to tune in because there is a sense of occasion surrounding it. And I think that can be done. I've already mentioned, you know, I think restoring some of the aesthetics away from American Idol semifinal to back to like real big piece of theater. I think that, you know, let's raise the stage. The slap wouldn't have happened if there had been stairs. Just Mm. saying it. Um, Good point. You know, make it a little bit more elevated. And then the cool thing would be with that is if they are trying to cast a wider net in terms of what's being recognized, like a Michelle Yeoh performance in a weird spring release oddball A24 thing, then that movie gets brought into the sort of haughty pomp and circumstance of the Oscars. And I think that's really nice. Like, I think it, it the, this idea that the Oscars has to get down on our level and be cool, it's like, that's kind of pandering and condescending. And so just be your ridiculous self and just invite more people into that fun frivolity and ridiculousness, you know? Yeah. Um, Treat it like an occasion. And I think that the strategy has been to kind of be like, ah, the Oscars now, we're cool. We're just, we're sitting with the chair, you know, the chair backwards, like Michelle Pfeiffer, and we're just having a rap, you know, it's a rap session with you. It, it's it's lame. And yeah. I think Packer tried to like zhuzh it up and having a really cool Beyonce performance open the ceremony this year. That's all fun. I don't mind that kind of theatrics. But like, at root, I think the show should be a little bit, a little bit more kind of crusty and and refined and like traditional, I guess, at least aesthetically. And I think 
I, I don't know. I think people will still watch it if that's the case, because this strategy of trying to like hip it up like doesn't really work. I think the way to hip it up is to maybe nominate hipper movies and to cast a wider net in that regard, but not this actual ceremony. I think they're kind of trying to fix the wrong thing. Yeah, there was a big Steve Buscemi, how do you do fellow kids energy. Very <laughs> how do you do fellow kids. Like, again, that stage, you know, where, what, what are we at the movie award, MTV movie awards? I don't know what we're doing, but like, I think, and although that might sound like petty me in my, you know, 10 years older than you dotage, Chris, like just being like, oh, it needs to go back to the way it was. I understand that some, you know, like the way the Oscars looked in 1995 probably wouldn't sell on TV now. That's fine. But there probably is a happier medium to be struck that has not been yet. Well, I didn't know you were one Will Smith slap older than me, Richard. I learned. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. That's how we measure time now. Now that's how we measure time. Um, well, you're about to hear uh, when I talked to Matt Bellany, I kind of asked him at the end for his ideas of how to fix the Oscars. And the one that really struck me was just having clips from upcoming movies, like letting the studios try to like debut footage from Avatar 2 or just like show something. So make it make the Oscars a showcase for the movies that are nominated, but stuff that's coming up and the industry as a whole and in a way that I think would be more organic than the like fan favorite countdown mess from this year that I think we can all agree was kind of a disaster. Um, I think once you start thinking about it and ways to just like make it a celebratory feel not apologizing for what's nominated there are, are so many options which yeah I don't, know why I, don't think I, of them uh, yeah to, just to briefly clarify what i said and to expand on what you just said katie it's like a movie like everything everywhere all at once or this past year missed opportunity the harder they fall those movies deserve the kind of oscar treatment of old too you know i think there's this kind of then this attitude of like in order to like be more on the level with these kind of more ultra hipper films we need to kind of change who we are and it's like no the it, 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 like they they should get the big dress up gown moment as well you know and, mm -hmm. and i think that's what the oscars mm -hmm. is i don't i think that 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 seems to be a sort of calculation that hasn't been made recently and it's a it's a little frustrating mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Um, well, let's go ahead and hear my conversation with Matt Bellany for many more ideas about uh, how this Oscars played out and what could go better next time. Okay, so uh, I want to thank Matt Bellany, a founding partner of Puck and host of the Town Podcast, uh, for joining me. Hey, Matt. Hi there. I have been uh, avidly reading your newsletter ever since it started and um, listening to your podcast. And oh, thanks. really, um, you kept updates on the post-Oscar situation that was so messy. And I think really kind of captured the the chaos that followed this year's Oscar ceremony and had written, I think, the day that Will Smith decided to resign from the Academy, that it was after taking the temperature of the town that he realized that was the right thing to do. And I feel like you're the person who I turn to to know what is the temperature of the town. So when that happened, or even now, like what what was that temperature? What were you watching unfold in that crazy week? 
I think the temperature changed markedly from Sunday night to Monday morning when people woke up and they were like, wait a second, what happened last night? Why was he allowed to stay in the room and then give a speech and then kind of explain his behavior by trying to justify it and then go to the Vanity Fair party and dance the night away? I think that people were pissed. They feel like they that Will Smith had kind of hijacked the show and embarrassed the Academy, besmirched the Oscars name and the industry in general. And, you know, the Hollywood doesn't have a city council or a ruling body that governs things. So we kind of look to the Academy for better or worse to make these kinds of symbolic decisions. And people said, we got to do something. Yeah. And they had no, you know, they moved up their usual postmortem to what felt even earlier on April 18th and then said, OK, no, we have to do this sooner. And then they finally had that meeting on April 8th and um, made their ruling of banishing him from the Academy events for 10 years. Did that feel like the right call to you? Was that enough? Well, they moved it up not because they wanted this to be urgent. They moved it up because they didn't have to give Will Smith the 15 days to respond. Typically, there's a procedure that members are that members have to adhere to when they have disciplinary action, but he resigned. So yeah. they could move it up. And I think what happened to the meeting was somewhat predictable. Given the level of anger around town, it doesn't surprise me that they went to 10 years for the ban from all Academy activities. I had thought they might do one, three, five years, but 10 seems appropriate given the amount of anger. What doesn't seem appropriate is that they didn't go further and hmm. didn't ban him from nominations because I think that would have been the actual statement moment. I mean, let's be honest. Will Smith doesn't care if he goes to the Oscars or doesn't go to the Oscars. He wants to be eligible for awards. That's the whole economics of this situation is that it helps your career. It helps the movies you're in if you can get them nominated. And it, you know, it's the, the trinket. When you are phenomenally wealthy and famous, you want to be an Oscar winner. And if they had taken that away from him, I think it would have hurt. But I understand I understand the downsides, but it seems like they did not go far enough, in my opinion. Now, and something we say on the show all the time is that people on Twitter are not the Academy and are not the industry. But like, what do you make of people being like, well, they gave Roman Polanski an Oscar after he was, you know, pled guilty to child rape? Like, do you see the do you see the argument for hypocrisy there? Sure, I get it. But that was a different era. <laughs> And yeah. so what? I mean, the better arguments I have heard for not doing this was you got to keep the awards separate. The awards are the whims of the full academy. If they want to vote for someone, they should be able to vote for someone irrespective of their personal behavior. I kind of get that. I also get the argument that if he was ineligible and somehow gave such an outstanding performance that it was an obvious Oscar contender and that he was not eligible, that other nominees in the category might feel like they had an asterisk on their name. They are not the true best of the year because Will Smith was not eligible. That one I see a little bit less. I think yeah. that's a little bit of a stretch because as you guys know on this podcast, phenomenal performances often do not get nominated. It is a certain type of performance from a certain type of actor in a certain type of movie that tends to get nominated. So I just don't understand those arguments. I think they were, the Academy was thrust into the global spotlight here. They had to do something that sent a message and that message was sort of mocked by a lot of people that were like, wait a second, what? So he can still be nominated? So it's just that he can't go to the Oscars? Who wants to go to the Oscars? I mean, the range of responses to this, and I think, you know, reading, you're reporting on other people and then following the people on Twitter, like, there are some people who think that nothing should have happened, and there are some people who think that his Oscar should have gotten taken away. Like, there's just no 
you know, there's no precedent for something like this. So I guess, what do you think the Academy, like, does does the best decision they can in a bad situation and tries to move on? Yeah, I think that's what's going on here. And I, and I don't envy that situation that they were put in. Like I said, they have this weird position in Hollywood where they are not the city council, but people look to them to be a sort of representative government because they are made up of all the different branches of people who make movies. And they're given this award every year that means something and that we've been taught over the years to care about. So, you know, they did have a tough situation. I just feel like they, they went with, um, kind of the obvious choice and the stronger choice would have sent a better message. So what do they do after this? Like, I think that even if the slap hadn't happened, like the Oscars were in a tough position, like the eight categories being cut from the ceremony was a kind of mess they had in their hands before this. Is this the absolute nadir that they have to dig themselves back from? Does it get worse than this? Oh, it can always get worse <laughs> ratings wise and attention <laughs> yeah. wise. I mean, the, the, the real question is whether audiences are going to show up next year because of a looky-loo curiosity factor after this whole story or whether it's going to further damage the Oscars brand and people are going to tune out even more. Um, That'll be something left to be seen. But the slap kind of diverted our attention from the fact that this show was not very well produced. You know, the whole promise of putting the categories on the pre-show was to save time. Yeah, And they were going to save time to bring it in under three hours. That didn't happen. It went to 3.30 something. Mm -hmm. And they were going to use that extra time to do interesting things that might bring in a wider audience. Now, there were attempts to do reunions. You know, The Godfather and Juno and for some reason, White Men Can't Jump. I'm not quite sure why that one made it on. (laughs) But, you know, they did those kinds of things, which I think was a good start. But they didn't really use the platform like they could have. And I've been talking for years about ways to improve the Oscars. They didn't really do much that was radical or or uh, a divergence from what they typically do. Well, and like Will Packer, I think, comes in as someone who has a lot of Hollywood relationship. Like he's a guy who, you know, presumably can bring in people like Regina Hall to host the Oscars. But I assume he's not coming back next year after what happened. Like, Oh, no. Just- <laughs> oh, I mean – uh, they have not said that, but I cannot. And they were the Academy was so pissed that he did that GMA interview without telling them, and yeah. he has sort of tried to save face for himself. And there's a real question as to whether he was actually lying when he said to them that Chris Rock wanted Will Smith to stay in the building. Chris yeah. Rock's sources close to him are saying no, that never happened. So either. He misinterpreted Chris Rock's desire not to press charges for a desire to keep him in the room, which seems kind of fuzzy, or he just fudged the whole thing. Yeah, do you think we're ever going to get an accurate accounting of what happened in that 30 minutes? Because all of the stories conflict so much that it doesn't seem like anyone even now remembers what really happened. I I think the LA Times tried and didn't really get there because there are conflicting accounts, and it's going to be very difficult Um, without Chris Rock joining the conversation because he obviously has a lot to say about that time period and he has not so far said it. I imagine he will in a future special. But, you know, the the real thing that I wonder about is if video will emerge of Jada Pinkett Smith during that whole four or five seconds after the joke. Because we've only seen a snippet. We haven't actually seen the exchange between Will and Jada that led him to jump up on stage. Yeah, there's a Pruder tape that we're looking for. I know. I would love to see that video. I assume the Academy has it, and I also assume they will never release it. 
Yeah. I mean, does the fact that we're talking about this and, you know, for the first time in years, people in my life want to talk about the Oscars, which I love. I love it when people want to talk about it, even for this reason. Does that suggest that maybe it's not as far gone as we think, that there is still cultural relevance here if they can capture it for reasons that don't involve violence on stage? I guess this became one of those train wreck television moments. It's up there with the OJ car chase and Mike Tyson biting a guy's ear off. It's one of those just shock moments on live television that got a lot of attention. But as we saw with the ratings, it didn't really translate into that big of a boost for the rest of the show. It was mostly a digital moment. And yes, people tuned in to watch, but then also they were like, okay, I've seen it. And then they moved on. I mean, the Academy is going to go through some transition, even aside from all of this. With Don Hudson, uh, the CEO, and David Rubin, the president, both kind of ending their terms soon. Is there reason to hope that that's a, a kind of a, a, able to turn over a new leaf and get out of some of this mess? I think a lot of people on the Board of Governors hope so. I mean, this was not I – mean, Don Hudson announced she's leaving before this Oscars, and I think she's probably happy she did because it now it doesn't seem like she's yeah. <laughs> leaving in scandal. But in a way, she is kind of leaving in scandal. This happened under her watch. David Rubin also responsible here. They are 100% responsible for Will Smith staying out there and being allowed to accept his award on stage. We can say what you want about Will Packer and what he told everybody or the publicist getting involved, but this is the Academy show. If you are the CEO of the Academy, you are paid a lot of money to make those decisions in real time and to recognize the fallout of allowing him to stay in the room. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of event that you imagine no one would have planned for because no one ever thought it would happen. But that's a... They didn't. But the Academy did come up with a crisis plan after the Envelope Gate controversy five years ago, which was also an unprecedented situation and something that they thought could never happen or never be topped. And you just never know. This is is live television. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And they should have had a plan. They should have had a backup or something or gone to commercial right away and come out and explained what was going on. They should have said, you know what, Will Smith, come talk to us on the wings. Come talk to us off stage for a second. Get him out of the camera's eye so that they can figure out what to do without the, the glare of the world on them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about the fact that, um, you know, everyone who was sitting in the auditorium was watching these conversations, people running back and forth to a seat the entire time. There's no more public uh, a crisis than that, really. And it, w- and it didn't have to be public. Yeah. They could have said if, if Don or David had more gravitas to them and more credibility with the membership, they would have marched right over and said, come with me. Yeah. And they would have brought him off stage. And I know he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And I know they were very cognizant about the optics of race and, you know, the, the fact that he's African-American. But they should have said, you know, we're not asking you to leave. We're just asking you to come talk to us off stage. And then you get into the conversation. Yeah. So what is your idea for how to fix the Oscars? I think everyone has their kind of pet theories of what would make this all work better. Do you have one that you return to over and over? I keep going back to the notion of original content Mm. and what draws an audience these days. It's something you can't see anywhere else. It's undeniable. So what does that mean in the context of the Oscars? It means original movie clips, in my opinion. You give the studios five to seven three-minute slots where it's an auction or a, or a lottery to see who gets them. And the only rule is that you have to debut three minutes of original footage from a movie that has not been seen before. 
So you're talking even more than trailers, like we were doing full clips. Not trailers. I'm talking scenes, mm-hmm. like three minutes of Black Panther 2. Yeah. Three minutes of Elvis. Three minutes of Avatar 2. These movies that will get people excited. Think about those big trailer launch moments that you see online and how people get so excited for the new Star Wars trailer or whatever it is. If you could harness that, bring it to the Oscars and do it up with fanfare. Have Michael B. Jordan or Letitia Wright come out and introduce two minutes of Wakanda Forever. Yeah. Along with a tribute to Chadwick Boseman. Something like that. Or James Cameron debut the Avatar footage. And so the people in the room are seeing it for the first time, just like we are at Mm -hmm. home. And it becomes a cultural event. And advertise that fact. Do yeah. it, you know, in the in the ads going up to the show, say, boom, 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 these four movies, you're going to see the first looks of them only on the Oscars. What's the hang up, Ben, about promoting movies at the Oscars? Like, it seems like a, some kind of fairness doctrine thing that has been tripping them up forever. Well, they used to have a rule that you couldn't run commercials for movies during the Oscars because there would be a perception that certain movies were favored or certain studios were favored if they bought ads on the Oscars. Uh, That has sort of gone away as the relevance of the show has gone away (laughs) and they've sort of been forced to take movie ads. You know, Disney, if you watch the Oscars, Disney goes nuts with yeah. the commercials because, you know, they own they ABC yeah. and they can't. And, and you know, I think it does bring a little bit of a kind of taint to the show because it's so closely aligned with Disney, but not so much where if you did it in a fair way, you could have these clips air on the show. And even if it's just 16 million viewers that watch it in the U.S., that's 16 million viewers. It's pretty good for, yeah. you know, a promotional platform for your film. Yeah, and you write, you know, you have an auction, you raise money for whatever academy grant or something like that, and you make everyone gets to look good from it, right? Sure. Or you do it for free. It really doesn't matter. It's it's all about getting that content onto the show, and you would have to convince the marketing departments. They would push back and they say, "Oh, it's not. We're not ready. We don't want to go big yet." But you know what? People go early for Super Bowl ads. They can go early for this. Yeah. So do you think that this year's Gambits, the Cutting the Egg categories and the Fan Favorite Awards, are those just going to be written off as a full-blown failure? I hope not. I was actually one of the few people that was a proponent of moving some of these categories off the show. But I was only a proponent if you had a tangible benefit, if you actually did save time on the show, and if you actually used that time to put original content or some other compelling content on the show. They sort of half-assed it. They took the categories off the show, but they didn't really reduce the time that much because they ended up showing so much of the speeches during the show. So I would love to know how much time they actually saved. They probably just saved the time for people to walk up on stage because they did a full introduction and a full speech. Yeah. Well, they did. They cut the speeches. They didn't show the full ones. But they didn't they showed show the full one, but they showed a lot of them. I mean, yeah. I was there for the the first hour, and like, yeah. there wasn't that much that they cut. Yeah, they were pretty fuzzy leading up about how much of the speeches they were cut, and I think it was like it was hard to know. I think they backtracked. Yeah, I think they think- backtracked. I think some of the the backlash they got caused the producers to be like, okay, we're not going to cut these people way down. We're going to give them their full due. We don't want 
the industry people to go nuts. And that's the problem is that they're forever balancing the whims of the industry versus the fact that this is a live television show for millions of people that ABC has paid a billion dollars to air over 10 years. And the Academy treats it like a backyard barbecue. Yeah. Or how about the fan favorite award, though? Are they going to do that again? I don't know. That was sort of silly. I mean, <laughs> I think that that people went crazy over that and it ended up just being like a bumper on the commercials. So yeah, people it, in the room didn't even know what to make of it. For, like, no one knew if they should clap or not. I know. We were sort of laughing at, you know, the, what was the Snyderverse stuff that got, mm-hmm. got picked. I mean, they should probably do a better job of just avoiding the Zack Snyder trolls from taking over their poll. But, uh, but I don't <laughs> mind like that kind of stuff. Goal. I honestly yeah. don't mind that kind of stuff. I would love if there were a, a one or two fan-voted awards on the show. Not real Oscars, but acknowledgments. You know, I also think yeah. they should... I think they should add a, a breakthrough performer. Mm-hmm. I think that that would be a great Oscar to add. Someone that is not, you know, on your radar. Or you could do something where it's like they haven't been in a in a movie before. They've only done two things. And then sure. have it, you know, where you, you could honor someone that may not get a, a nomination. Like the girl, the, the girl from CODA who yeah, didn't get yeah. an Oscar nomination. What's her name? Um, Amelia Jones. Amelia Jones. Perfect candidate for this yeah. because had never seen her before. She's fantastic in the movie, probably is not going to get an Oscar nomination when she's competing against Nicole Kidman and those types of performers, but would be absolutely perfect for this. And then the Baptists have that. They have the Rising Star Award that's actually voted on by the public. Love that. Love so you that. think that like the Oscar purists are being a little too precious about what the Oscars can and can't be? I do. And I think there's a way to honor the tradition and the specialness of the Oscars while making it a little bit more populist. And maybe by not apologizing for what they did nominate, which feels like it's so often the vibe of being like, well, no one saw these movies, so let's talk about Spider-Man instead. Right, I mean, half the monologue was trashing the movies that were nominated. And, you know, I know there's a long tradition, and Billy Crystal used to get away with it because it was all in good fun, but some of the Amy Schumer jokes felt a little mean-spirited to me. Not They were funny, I laughed, she was good, but, like, if I'm Aaron Sorkin, why would I show? I know he wasn't there, but why would I show up to have Amy Schumer talk for two minutes about how my movie wasn't funny? Yeah. Like, and and it's just sort of become this thing where the stars kind of know going in that they're going to get trashed. And don't get me wrong, I love that as a viewer, and I think I think it's great. Like Ricky Gervais is like the best award show host of all time, and that's what mm. he does. But it does contribute to this notion that the Academy doesn't like the movies that it nominates. Yeah, or that they feel ashamed of how of where they've landed, which is no one likes that energy. And they know, I mean, it's, it's basically they know that the general public doesn't see these movies. They're watching Marvel movies, which generally speaking, do not get nominated. Yeah. And, you know, the movies as a cultural cachet item have really diminished. So, you know... That's where that's where it ends up. Yeah. Um, maybe last question for you. Is there something that the Academy can do between now and like October before our award season starts that will give you like some faith that they've taken the right lessons from this and maybe next year's event won't be quite such a debacle? Yeah, there's one great thing they could do, which would be to sign a veteran television producer mm-hmm. to a long-term deal to produce the Oscars. Yeah. Enough of this hiring a movie producer to come in for a year, learn how to produce a live television show, call some of his friends, and then do the Oscars and then go away. 
They need, you know, the guy who produces the Grammys, perfect example, Ben Winston. He is a very good live television producer. He did the Adele special, which was fantastic. Did the Friends reunion. He does the Grammys each year. That is the kind of person that they should hire to come in and give this person a long-term deal. Say, here's a three-year deal. Come in and produce the show. There are bonuses in your deal if the ratings go up. Mm-hmm. So you incentivize the person to create a populist show and stand up against some of these industry pressures to have 45 minutes of costume designers and visual effects supervisors speaking on stage and make it a show that the average person would want to watch. Well, and doing love shows, it's hard. Like, it takes you a career to learn how to do this stuff well. And it's, it's, it's baffling to me, too. It is a talent. And you can see it. I mean, there were producing errors during the Oscars this year. I mean, the fact that they did a whole James Bond tribute without any of the Bonds or any of the Bond girls or any of the Bond villains really participating. And it was separated on the show from the singing of the song from the Bond movie. Yeah. Like, package that up. Like, make it into a moment. I mean, these shows are really about creating moments. And the Oscars seem to have lost that. Yeah. Except when they don't intend it and it becomes the the moment that (laughs) the only thing anyone will remember from this year's show. Sure, yeah. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. As always, we will have an interview episode on Tuesday. That'll be Rebecca Ford talking to Pachinko creator Sue Hugh. And then we'll be back on Thursday with our usual roundtable conversation where we probably will not talk about the 2022 Oscars. I think... That door is closed, at least for the time being. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, where we're writing about all kinds of things. Our colleague, Johanna Desta, had a great breakdown of all the movie references and everything, everywhere, all at once that you should totally read after you see the movie. Um, You can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Chris. Chris Chris-tris. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash LittleGoldMen or text 917-563-4588. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best thing that they'll start handing out at the Oscars instead of Oscars goes to Chris Murphy. A hapless, sweet, nerdy husband. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support that. we support that. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.